You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning, church. Welcome. Um, It is my honor and privilege to be able to preach to us this morning. I'm thankful to Dean, our pastors, and our elders for this privilege, as it's no small thing to teach to the church gathered. My name's Hank Williamson. I'm a member of City Church, and I work in our college ministry. Um, And I'm very thankful for the work there. You may have seen me around before. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you. Um, I'll be in the lobby after the service and get to know you. I would like to wish a happy birthday to my wife today as well. And with that said, we have a lot to work through, three books this morning. So let's pray and dive right in. Lord, we thank you that every Sunday we get to gather, look at your word as we work through the entire canon of scripture this year, and we get to see in three books that we don't often read and we don't often talk about exactly how you worked in our people's history and how you can still work today and how this message though 2,500 years old, can speak directly to our hearts today. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that you would be with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, we will be diving into the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Yes, those are books in our Bible. Um, They're at the very back, so if you find Haggai, You flip a couple books to the right and you will see that you will land in Matthew, which means next week we have made it to the New Testament. But before then, we're going to dust off these books. Some of you may have had your Bible for years and there may be that little crinkle when you open up Haggai like it's a new Bible. Uh, But there's much to see here. And my hope for this sermon is that we might walk away with an understanding of these books, both in their original context, what they meant to that audience, but also how they're extremely significant to us today, how they hold meaningful value for our lives some 2,500 years later. And how we're going to do this, how we're going to break these three books down this morning is through two major themes that we see through all three books. But before then, Let's set the scene so we can understand where we are in the biblical timeline. So if you recall, in Jeremiah chapter 25, 8 through 11, he wrote this. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to sin for all the families of the north. This is the Lord's declaration, and sin for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. The whole land will become a desolate ruin. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So God, through Jeremiah, prophesied 
that the nation of Israel, due to its disobedience to God's covenant and his relationship with them, would be exiled by the nation of Babylon for 70 years. And as we've spoken about a couple times during the series, this exile does come in the year 587 B.C. Jerusalem is overtaken by the nation of Babylon. The temple is destroyed and the walls are broken down. But graciously, God's promise comes true that it will only last 70 years. And in the year 538 BC, the King Cyrus of Persia, now the ruling empire, declares the edict of Cyrus that the people of Israel may begin to return to their home. The history of this return is collected for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that we looked at previously this year. In Ezra, we see the temple being built. And in Nehemiah, we see a focus on the wall of Jerusalem being built. But in Ezra, we find these two things, Ezra 5.1. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So we have Haggai and Zechariah. And again, in Ezra 6.14, so the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah, son of Edo. So we can accurately and historically place these two books of Haggai and Zechariah in the post-exilic, so post-exile period. Both of these books were prophesied at the same time between the years 520 in 518 BC, Haggai focuses on the immediate need of the people to rebuild the temple and reunite themselves with God. While Zechariah was concerned, mainly, uh, he, though he was concerned with the rebuilding of the temple, his focus was the eschatological future of Israel. So what would be the future of this people? And then following these two books... We have the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, which was prophesied following these two books. And in it, we see that the temple is completed, the walls are restored, but worship is still not. And so he prophesies with the goal of restoring true worship in Israel. And so with that said, we're going to jump into our themes this morning for these three books. The first theme being this. Covenant unfaithfulness undermines worship. Covenant unfaithfulness undermines worship. We're going to begin in Haggai chapter 1. If you start in Malachi, you can just go backwards, work back three books. Or uh, Matthew, work back three books. So we'll start in verse 1. It says this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So the Lord here is quoting what the people are saying. And off the bat, this may seem reasonable. They did just get back from seven years of exile. Maybe they should focus on other things before the temple 
be rebuilt. But let's continue reading. Verse 3. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now we see the inconsistency. You've barely begun on my house. You've made it an afterthought. Yet you've completed your own homes. And it's not just that they sought the task to build homes where they could live. It's that they have finished them. They are furnishing them. These are paneled homes that they're living in. And they've done it all at the expense of covenant faithfulness to God. You see, God promised to dwell with his people. The way he did this in the Old Testament was through the temple. The people of God clearly wanted comfort in their lives more than they wanted communion with the living God. Let's keep reading, verse 5. Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. It's like gas prices right now. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. Look around, Israel. Take inventory of your miserable lives. Do you not notice how unfulfilling, unsatisfying, unrewarding, and extremely unproductive they are? You think it's not time to build my temple because you don't have much, but I'm telling you the reason you don't have much is because you won't build my temple. I am the one ruining your harvest because you are being unfaithful to me. Why, God? He asked the same question in the text. Doesn't that seem harsh? That seems a little harsh. It's because they forsook the covenant God made with them, and they put their desires above his commands. They quite literally put their own houses above the house of God. But God says, build my house. And so I ask us this morning, what are we putting before the house of God? Long before him. Maybe for us it also quite literally is our homes. Maybe we've turned those into an idol. You've gone full Chip and Joanna Gaines on that thing. But at what expense? Is it worth the health of your soul and the relationship with your heavenly father? Maybe you've forsaken giving generously this year. Because you think, I need to grow my savings, or I need more money for this investment. But isn't that a little backwards and a lot like this text? God says that our first fruits are for him. The first that comes to us goes to him. He's the one that gave it to us in the first place. Or maybe you've chosen more sleep 
over your Bible study. This, shouldn't, this should be healthy, right? We need eight hours to survive. But at the expense of being able to spend time with and begin your day with the living God of this universe, is eight hours that important? And let's be real with ourselves this morning. I can't know you all. I can't fill in every particular situation. But let's fill in in our own minds how we might be forsaking God and his covenant in order to chase what we believe might have some sort of gain. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified. Do you see how God is still inviting his people? Do you see how he's still drawing them back in? They've been exiled for unfaithfulness. They come back, and they're just as unfaithful as they were before, and he is still inviting us to worship him. Go get the materials. Build my house. I will be pleased, and I will be glorified in it. Is it not the same for us? We have sins that tempt us. We have sins that we love to commit because we just can't let go. And yet God continually calls us, repent, follow me, believe, and I will be glorified. And the encouraging part of this passage is that the people do repent in verses 14 and 15. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. They repented and they began the work on the house. But do you see how becoming unfaithful to God and his covenant to us ruins our worship? We'll continue now in Zechariah. First, we're going to look at a warning that he gives at the outset of his prophecy and then how the people still are being unfaithful in how they practice worship. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Again, we see here this offer of repentance from God. Verse 4. Don't be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them. This is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways. Turn from your evil deeds. But they didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? Do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Essentially what God is saying through Zechariah to these people is, Take a look with me. Look at what has lasted. My word or your disobedience. Where exactly are your ancestors? Where are the prophets 
of old. They're not here anymore. My word still stands. My statutes, my covenants still stand. Follow me. And then as we continue in Zechariah, we see that they have issues following God. Turn now to Zechariah 7. We'll start in verse 3. Zechariah 7, 3. The people start and they ask a question. Should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done these many years? Simple question. Response in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and in the seven months for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? And when you drink, eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves? Aren't these the words that the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem had it? was inhabited and secure along with its surrounding cities and when the southern region and the Judean foothills were inhabited? Simple question. Should we keep fasting like we've been doing these 70 years? And God, as he always does, and as we will see very clearly in Matthew, asks questions that go directly to the heart. Why would you fast? Have you ever once fasted for me? Actually, even when you eat... You aren't eating for me, so why wouldn't you fast, would you fast for me? This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. See, the Lord's intention is that our hearts would be changed. He takes no pleasure in outward actions if the heart is corrupted. So we'll see next week in Matthew, the Pharisees know the law very well. But they seem to miss passages like this where God is getting at the intent of the heart. They fast but for clout to show others how holy they are and how holy they can be. Actions, though they may seem to be good things if they come from a corrupted heart, are of no worth. So what is it that the Lord wants? What is it that the Lord values? Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Lord of armies says this, make fair decisions, show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. What God is saying here is act out of a heart for me. Look at my character in the law and live that out. Work out of the law because you love me. You've seen that I love you and you desire desperately to show that love to others. To covenant with God is to be like him. Our character is to be different because character stems from a heart that has experienced the love of God. And now, in the book of Malachi, we'll see a th the similar theme, disrupted worship because of unfaithfulness. Malachi 1, verse 1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. That's about all we know about Malachi right there. I have loved you, says the Lord, a wonderful 
pronouncement. This has been clearly seen in the Old Testament. A lot of people will say that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament is about love and mercy and grace. But what we see in the entire canon of Scripture, as in every book of the Bible, we see a God who loves us deeply and who has always loved us and has been faithful to us. Yet we often question him. Here in verse 2, yet you asked, how have you loved us? Pretty bold to ask. And God gives his reply, a very interesting reply. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Yes. This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the jackals. Do you see what he's doing here? Do you remember what we sung this morning? I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. God is establishing his love for the people of Israel in the fact that he chose them out of Jacob instead of Esau. Why? Because he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And he's saying, I chose you. How can you not see that since from the beginning, I have loved you. And so he's proving his love in his election of the people of God. He grounds it in them. And as we continue, this dialogue goes on, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master... Where's your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Like, we're not doing anything wrong. God responds, by presenting defiled food on my altar. We haven't defiled you. We haven't done that. God responds, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you bring up blind animals for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Take it to your boss. See if he accepts this as your final project. He's not going to take it. Why do you think I will? Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. If man wouldn't be pleased, God certainly wouldn't either. Verse 9, and now plead for God's favor. favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Just go ahead and shut the doors. It's not worth it anymore. You're causing more harm than good now because I am not impressed with your seconds. I made you. I've given you all that you have, and I deserve your first. I deserve everything. And what we see in all three of these examples, as it would apply to us today, is a very important principle for our lives. It's this. Faith in Jesus must supersede our desires. Faith in Jesus must come above our desires every single time. 
All of these issues of worship that we have seen point to an understanding that when we forsake God and his covenant, and when we do what we think is best, it does not turn out well. So we must correct our hearts. We must learn to see where we are turning away, and Jesus must come before our personal desires and what we want and what we think we might need. It must supersede our love for our our spouses and our children and our jobs and our homes and our friends and our money and our majors and our image. It must come before all of it. And with this in mind, I have to say that it is one of the most encouraging things to my faith to read the updates from our missionary families. We talk about them often here. We're very proud to have missionary families. We've sent three directly from this church body, the Stewarts, the Nelsons, and the true exes. These brothers and sisters, they're no different than us in the fact that they are redeemed by the same exact blood of Jesus Christ. But let me be very clear here, they are different. Their lives reflect what it means that faith in Jesus must supersede our desires. They have left everything behind. They have learned new languages, left friends, family, all for the sake of taking this gospel to a people who need it, who need to know our king. It shows a love that supersedes personal desire. But let me remind us this morning, church, we do not need to move to Germany, Africa, or Thailand to have a faith in Jesus that supersedes personal desire. We can pick up our cross every morning we wake up in Tallahassee, Florida, and decide to live on mission here for the sake of submitting to our King Jesus and living for him and his gospel. So we see that our faith in Jesus, it must supersede all of our desires. The second major theme this morning that runs through these books is this. There is a better future for God's people. There is a better future for God's people. These three books are chocked full of a future hope for the nation of Israel. I do not have time this morning for the amount of things in these three books that point to a coming day for the nation. I would encourage you to read them this afternoon. They're short books. You could easily read them in the evening, and just look at how many times we were promised a better future, something to come. The first thing that we see as we look back in Haggai, we see a promise of a better temple. Look with me at Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 3. 2, 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So we have people that were exiled. So they saw Solomon's temple. They saw the glory of it. And then they were exiled. Exiled. The temple was destroyed. They've come back. They're beginning this work as we saw in this temple. And God is asking them a question. Who's left among you? Who saw Solomon's temple? How does it look to you now? How does this temple look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Doesn't it kind of look like a shed compared to the previous temple? We see in Ezra that these people are grieving over 
this new temple because they saw the glory of the last temple. And so God in this moment is going to encourage us and give us hope that this temple isn't all that there is. Verse 6 of chapter 2. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be far greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And we know that God has ushered in this new temple. This temple is not a temple of brick and gold and silver. It is far better. It is a temple that is founded on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is building it up, not with stones, but with the people of God. It is no longer a place. It is a people who have been given the spirit to always be with us. There's no more need to sacrifice in a temple over and over. He has once and for all made a sacrifice through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And we know that we can worship God in this new temple. A temple that is being built from every tribe, tongue, and nation as we speak. He will gather it all into this new temple. Second, we see a new righteousness is promised for the people of Israel. Look with me at Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 7. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So here we have Joshua, the high priest of Israel at this time. And this is a vision that Zechariah is seeing. He's seeing him stand in front of the Lord and Satan is accusing him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Haven't I chosen him? Haven't I saved him from death? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. He said to them, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. A clean turban was placed on his head and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, this is what the Lord of armies says, if you walk in my ways... And keep my mandates. You will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will grant you access among these who are standing here. This new righteousness has come through Jesus Christ. We see Joshua in this vision having been stripped of filthy clothes. These clothes represent the sin and the iniquity of the nation of Israel. And God is showing us that he will take away our filthy clothes and will put on new clothes, clothes of righteousness, the ones that come from the king himself. So again, we no longer bring continual sacrifices to a temple because we don't need to be cleansed anymore. We have been cleansed once and for all 
by our Savior Jesus Christ when we repent of our sins and believe in him. And so now we plead the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf rather than sacrificing animals. He has granted us a new righteousness and new clothes of righteousness as he did with Joshua. Third, he promises a new day. A new day. Look with me in Malachi 4, verse 4. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the heads of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. What we have just read are the last recorded words of the Old Testament. And isn't it so interesting what is said? Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. Look back. Look at all that I have done. Look at how I have saved you. Remember my word. Remember my covenant. Remember my law to you. Do not forsake me. Continue following my commands. Do not forget my words as they have been recorded. Keep following me. I will make your path straight, but don't grow weary. He's promising a new day coming. And on this day, he says that the Lord will come and that he will prepare the way through Elijah, which we know and will see is John the Baptist as he prepares the way for the Lord. So we know that the day of the Lord, this new day that is promised here in Malachi, has come in Jesus Christ as he was made incarnate and came to live with us. And now that he has come and he has lived and died and resurrected, we await the final day of the Lord when he will come and he will truly make all things new, when this day of the Lord will reach its ultimate consummation. And then look with me at verse 6. This is how the Old Testament ends. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. He finishes with a, a promise. A choice, really. The same exact choice given to Adam and Eve in the garden. God or a curse. The Old Testament ends the exact way it began. What Malachi is showing us here, when the day of the Lord comes, as in when Jesus Christ comes to this earth, will you follow him? Will you repent and believe? Or will you not? Will you continue under the curse that was set on us when we sinned in the garden? So as we put a bow on the Old Testament this morning, I would like to remind us of what we've seen so we can have some recall going into next week. We see that we began as God created us perfect in the garden, made in his image, but with a choice. We chose to sin. We fell from a union with God, but by his graciousness, he made a way back for us, clothing Adam and then making a covenant with Noah, saving his family, saving a people. Then again, he graciously, in Genesis 15, covenants with Abraham, 
And he says, Abraham, I will make a great nation out of you. The stars and the sand will not be able to number their greatness. And then with Moses, he takes this people that has been made and he saves them. And then he gives them a law and instruction on how to follow him and worship him. And then with David, he shows him from this line, from your line, I will bring an everlasting king. We have seen man fall. We have seen a people made. We've seen a people rescued from Egypt. We've seen a land given. We've seen a land taken away. We've seen judges rise and we've seen judges fall. Kings rise and kings fail. A people come to know their God and a people betray their God. Priests lead and priests fail and prophets warning over and over and over to follow their king. And through this entire struggle, all along, over it all, is a promise of a long-awaited Messiah who would finally come and redeem this people to God forever. And next week in Matthew, we'll see that that long-awaited Messiah did come for his people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are extremely thankful for your covenants, for your grace, for your love, and for your mercy. We see a God and have seen a God in the Old Testament who has been loving and faithful over and over and over when we do not deserve it. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you've given us an example in your scriptures of how to worship, of how to praise you. And we ask that today, for the rest of our lives, we would do the same, that we would not forsake you for personal gain, but that we would follow you all the days of our life. We thank you for our King Jesus and his coming. And we long for next week when we will begin to see him in the book of Matthew. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.